You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Good morning. Wonderful to see everybody. If you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of James in the New Testament. The book of James, it's very much toward the back. One of the last books in the, in the Bible, book of James. We'll look at chapter 2 of the book of James. Book of James, chapter 2. Again, let me, uh, on the back of your bulletin, there's a little parking diagram uh, on these Fuller Sundays. You might want to look at that. There's, we, we have a, two of our security guards there to kind of help you direct you across the um, street to the other the extra parking places. And also my boy Patrick. Patrick, are you here? Patrick was out there in his orange vest doing a great job today. But, but you can always park across the street. Um, there's plenty of parking across the street. There's other parking nearby that we're clear to park at that are one or two block walks. So there's always plenty of parking. You just got to get to it. So this, this back will tell you how to do that. So please uh, check that out. We've been doing a series of messages that we're calling the paradoxical faith. And we have um, gone through a lot of different things. I don't want to reiterate every sermon we've preached the past five weeks. But we've talked about God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We've talked about humanity, about mankind. And last week we talked about grace, how they're all paradoxical. Last week when we talked about grace, we talked about a phenomenon about it that grace is a paradox in that it is inclusive yet exclusive. And what we mean by that is it is inclusive, it is for all. Grace is for all. It's indiscriminate. Grace doesn't care what you've done. Grace doesn't care what your background is. Grace doesn't care anything about you at all. All humans, we're on a level playing field before grace. It's, that's grace. But it does care that you understand the source of it. Grace is inclusive, but it's exclusive. It's through one, through Christ. And so we talked about that. And in grace, what happens is we understand that, that salvation through grace simply means God put the burden for our salvation entirely on himself. It was entirely his work. He paid the price. And grace, salvation through the grace of God is not if you will. Salvation by the grace of God is because he has. Every other religion will say this about salvation. In some form, there's a do in it. Do, do, do. Christianity's message of salvation has the word done in it. Done, done, done. It is by grace. It's unconditional. It's unmerited. It is a free gift to God, and it's available to anybody. And the way we receive grace is through faith. The Bible says over over and over again, salvation is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. It is God acting, God providing. And the only way you can receive a gift is through faith. It's through believing. It's through taking it by faith. Then, and that can be a little more uncomfortable to us than we might think. And there's a story told of a man who was rock climbing, 
by himself, and he was going up, and he was climbing and doing these dangerous climbs, and he slipped, and he was sliding off the cliff, and as he was sliding off the cliff, he reached up and grabbed a branch, and he hung suspended over hundreds and hundreds of feet of a, of a ravine, and he was just hanging there. And so he screams out in a loud voice. He says, can anybody hear me? Is anybody there? Can anybody save me? Screaming this out desperately. And as he does, he hears a voice. Says, I can hear you. I am here. I can save you. But I can't until you let go of the branch. And then he shouts out, can anybody else hear me? (laughs) Because part of a salvation that is by grace through faith is letting go of that branch. And that branch for a lot of us is just not on our rights, our will to live our life our way and all this. But also it's our self-perception of how good we really are. That we're deserving. Hey, I deserve to. If anybody goes to heaven, it's going to be me. It's that kind of letting go of that branch. And so that's what we're, we're talking about when we talk about faith. And there's a few Bible verses I want us to look at. Hopefully they'll be up on the screen. But Romans chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 2, verse 16, excuse me, talks about this. It says, therefore, the promise, and that's the promise of salvation. It comes by faith so that it might be by grace and might be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who had the faith of Abraham. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so it might be by grace. It might be guaranteed to all. Look at the next verse. It's Romans 5, 2. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We access God's grace by faith, and we stand in it. And that's what we believe. Salvation is by grace, through faith. That's how it received. Now, as we go through the history of Christianity, we see that right early on, this belief, this understanding of salvation, by grace, through faith, got corrupted. And it got corrupted in a couple different directions. One is... There were many people who thought salvation, by, it can't be free. It can't not require anything of us. And so they begin to add stipulations to it. If you read the book of Galatians, for instance, it's written to a group of people who were kind of being misled by a party that told them that in order to, to, to have grace, not only is it what Christ provided, but also they must go through the ritual of circumcision. And if you read throughout Christian history, you'll usually find oftentimes people adding addendums to grace. And it's always grace for salvation plus something else. And again, we talked about this last week. Grace is the vehicle to salvation, but it's very important we understand the kind of vehicle it is. Grace is a car. It's an automobile. It's not a bicycle. In a car, what does the work? The vehicle does all the transporting, doesn't it? You just sit. 
You just ride. The vehicle does the transporting. A bicycle, hey, it beats a walk, but you contribute. Grace is not a bicycle. Grace is a car ride. The vehicle does all the work. Now, the second way that grace got corrupted is people began to take it and say, well, if you're forgiven of all your sins and it's a free gift, you can live any way you want. There's a verse from the book of Jude. Um, Jude was Jesus' younger brother, and he wrote this. He said, and this is in his day. This is in the first century. He said, certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have slipped in among you. And here's what he says about them. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. They pervert it. And how do they do that? They turn it into a license for immorality. They say, you know what? If you're saved by grace, you can do whatever you want to. It doesn't matter. And he says this, and they deny or reject Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So there's two kind of flaws we can get into when we talk about by grace through faith. We can get into this error where we are adding to it. We can get into this error where we're taking it for granted and we just live in sin and we don't care. And if you read the New Testament, you're going to see passages that address both of these extremes. Let me show you a couple of them here. If you look at Galatians, for instance, Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, so that we who put our faith in Christ may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. That's Galatians 2.16. Paul says, we are justified by faith in Jesus, not by the works of the law, by faith alone, not any law at all. But then he goes on here, and look at this in Galatians 5. This is the next page. He says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious, Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, self and ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And then he says this I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that seems a little bit of a rub on what he said earlier. We're justified by faith alone. Yet he's saying, you know, if you live wrong, you're not getting in. Look at the next one here, Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works that no one should boast. It's Ephesians 2. But then look what he says again. The next page in the Bible. It's in Ephesians 5. For you can be sure. Everybody say the word sure. You can be sure of this, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Now, and then he kind of puts an exclamation point. Look at this. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes upon all those who are disobedient. So again, Ephesians 2. By grace, through faith, not of works, it's a gift of God. Ephesians 5, hey, don't kid yourself. Don't be deceived. If you live this kind of a lifestyle, and he's pretty emphatic, God's wrath is coming. That's kind of an interesting twist. And then we have Titus chapter 1. 
verse 16, Paul writes, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. Look at this description. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good thing. And again, uh, Paul just says, hey, that claim to know God, there's like a faith claim, but by their actions they reject Him. So there's something here that's very paradoxical when it comes to salvation. And the paradox is the relationship between faith and works. It's very important, and the New Testament writers kind of hit both, that you can look and you can see they taught salvation is by faith alone, but yet they put some priority or some precedent for works in that. And, and understanding this relationship for us today is vital. And, and I'll illustrate to you why. I've got a couple books here. I want to show them to you. They're really great books. One is called The Case of, for Christ by a guy named Lee Strobel. Now, Lee Strobel uh, is an interesting story. He went to uh, Yale Law School, went to journalism undergrad. Then he went to Yale Law School. Very smart guy. And when he graduated, he began to be the lead beat writer for the legal department of the Chicago Tribune back when newspapers were a big deal. This was a very big deal and a very big job way back when. Some of you don't know what a newspaper is probably, but it's this thing we used to read back in our day. And he was working there, and his wife became a Christian. And it bothered him that she was buying into this weird, ancient Middle Eastern superstition. So he set out, and for 14 months set on a quest to prove to her that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a hoax. It didn't happen. And he thought it would be very easy to do. And so he began to research. Again and again, he asked witnesses. He went to secular sources. He went to Christian sources. He examined every theory that tried to explain away the resurrection. He examined why a Christian would believe the resurrection happened. And this is his conclusion Having weighed the evidence, it's very powerful. He says this, By November 8th, 1981, my legend thesis, which was Jesus was just a legend that gained air, to which I doggedly clung to for so many years, had been thoroughly dismantled. What's more, my journalistic skepticism toward the supernatural had melted in light of the breathtaking historical evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was a real historical event. In fact, my mind could not conjure up a single explanation that fit the evidence of history nearly as well as the conclusion that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the one and only Son of God. The atheism I had embraced for so long buckled under the weight of historical truth. It was a stunning and radical outcome, certainly not one I had anticipated when I embarked on this investigative process. But it was, in my opinion, a decision compelled by the facts. He wrote a book about a story. We have an atheist who researches the facts, and he's not the only one. He's overwhelmed by the historical evidence that Jesus Christ was, as he said, the one and only unique son of God. And because of the facts, this atheist became a Christian. Now here's another book. It's by a guy named William Lovedale. It's called Losing My Religion. 
Let me tell you his story. He was a guy who uh, grew up in Virginia, was working at a newspaper in his late 20s, early 30s. Uh, he was married. His life was a mess. He was on the verge of divorce, on the verge of a lot of things. His life out of control. And in that, he began to reach out. He found a friend who was a Christian. He began to go to Bible studies. He began to go to church. He went to a, you know, his church growing up was not cool. He went to a cool church, which was like blew his mind. And he just went, and he, one, one, about a year later of going to Bible study, going to church, he went to a, a men's retreat. And at that men's retreat, talked about how he became a Christian, how he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and his life was dramatically changed. He was excited about the Lord, excited about Christ. And about a year later, he saw a job opportunity with the L.A. Times to be their religion writer, to do religious stories for the L.A. Times. Again, back when newspapers were big. And he was just super excited about it. And so he got the job. And when he got there, he began to do stories about these great Christian people that were doing these great, awesome things. But he talked about how it started nagging him after a while that the people that were extraordinary that he was writing about were people simply following Jesus. And he wondered kind of like, what about the other 90-something percent? Including himself, he said, why aren't we more persuaded by what the truth is? And then he began to do some other investigating, and he got involved in the Catholic scandal about the, the cover-up. Then he got involved in investigating televangelists. And then he got involved in just, in, in just investigating other aspects of Christianity, the underbelly. And this is what he said. He literally lost his faith and became an atheist. Lily said in his book, it's not because of fact, it's not because of evidence. He was so emotionally depleted by what he saw in the church that he couldn't stick with it any longer. And he writes this, The darkest part of my heart I wanted to show in a very public way, this is why I wrote this book, how people who identify themselves as Christians had driven me away from the faith I loved. If someone with my desire for God could come away delusioned by faith, then Christianity in its present form is in trouble, and someone should point that out to believers. This is amazing. You have an atheist, researches the facts, and becomes a Christian. You have a Christian that researches believers and becomes an atheist. That's horrifying. The most famous trial in my lifetime was the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Very famous trial. And the evidence for O.J.'s guilt was overwhelming. But there was one thing that happened that flipped the whole verdict. There was an officer named Mark Furman who the prosecution brought up to testify. He's the one that found the glove and found some of the evidence against O.J., overwhelming evidence. But then someone found tapes of an interview Mark Furman had done with a journalist where he talked about as a police officer how he'd plant evidence, made racial slurs uh, toward black people over and over and over again, repeatedly on these tapes. And when the, when the defense brought the evidence 
and the jury saw this tainted witness. They didn't care about the evidence anymore. The witness was so tainted and so corrupt, they could no longer believe the case that they were presenting. That is too often what the church is. We're Mark Furman. We're representing the truth, but we do it in such a fraudulent way that people turn away from Christ and turn away rather than buy in. And so it's very important we understand this paradox of faith and works. These challenges that we had today were challenges they had in the early church. And there's a book about it, and, and it's uh, really powerful. James chapter 2. Let's look at it real briefly here. James chapter 2. James was Jesus' brother. Grew up with him. We'll start in verse 14. James starts by asking a question in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Verse 15. Suppose that a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing to help their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteous, and we are called God's friend. Verse 24, but you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Verse 25, in the same way, not even Rahab the, even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let me tell you what he's saying there. Four real simple things. Number one thing he asks is just, here's the question. If somebody says they believe in Jesus and they don't live it, is that person really a Christian? Is that person saved? That's the question he's asking. And then he answers that question in this passage. And what he does, he illustrates what faith is not. And first thing he says, faith is not, faith is not just saying the right thing. Faith is not talk. The second thing he talks about, faith is not just having right theological beliefs. And third thing, faith is not, faith is not just good intentions. But he goes on and explains what faith really is. And he talks about the two stories. One's the story of Abraham. Abraham was committed to God to such an extent he was willing to offer up the best thing he had to him. Faith was, was evidenced in his commitment. 
And then there was a pagan prostitute named Rahab. Couldn't have been more unfit for God. But yet she did something that demonstrated faith. And because of that, she experienced salvation. And that was simply this. She changed her loyalties. She really changed loyalties from her past to the Lord. And then he makes this comment. And he says, just like a, bo- a, a, the, a person without a spirit is dead, a body without a spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Anybody here ever use a pen? I know we, we do that. We have like a writing pen. We call pens writing instruments, right? You have a pen. If you pick up, now I don't know if you guys do this. Does anybody else do this in your home where you just store pens like in mass in a cup? You do that. The laughs give you away. And you ever reach in and just grab the pen, you're going to work, you're going to write, and all of a sudden you, and it doesn't write? The pen has no ink? Is that a pen? Is a pen with no ink a pen? No. What do you do? Depending, you throw it away or put it back in the cup, but it's... (laughs) But the point is, pen's not a pen. It's got no ink. It's not a pen. It's a plastic tube with a plastic straw inside of it. It's not a pen. Is someone who says they're a Christian and doesn't live it a Christian? Someone who says they're a Christian and doesn't live it is no more a Christian than a pen with no ink is a pen. That's what he's saying there. Let me show you some math of what the way salvation works here. If you can put that up on the screen here. There's three things ways to understand that. One is that salvation is faith plus works. That's not true. Salvation is not faith plus works. But the flip side, salvation is not faith minus work. That means if you believe, you can live any way you want to. Here's the third thing. Faith produces salvation and faith produces works. Faith changes you. Faith changes how you live. There is, I don't know if you guys remember this, I hope you don't, but about five, four or five weeks ago when we f- fall was first going and everybody was starting to get back in August, do you remember what it felt like in this place? I remember how it was a little warm. I do because I was preaching and I really had to work up here, sweating. And if, what we found out is, let me tell you when that happened. <clears throat> if you went to the thermostat in this room, the thermostat was set to 65 because we like it cold in here. 65. The thermometer said it was 85. A thermostat is what, ind- is what basically causes the temperature to be what it is. If you set your, your cooling system at 65, it is telling the system, kick it in, make it cool in here. I want it to be 65 degrees. It's what creates the temperature. The thermometer tells you what the temperature actually is. It's the indicator. One is the uh, controller, one's the indicator. 
In a healthy cooling system, the thermometer and the thermostat are calibrated. If you say 65, it should be 65. If, if, it's, if you say 65 and it says 85, guess what that means? Something is broken. And if my faith says, Jesus is Lord, but my lifestyle says something very different, something's broken. Something's very broken. And if that's you, I'm going to tell you one of the most important things you can do in your life is face that fact. Have a moment of clarity. And get real with yourself and get honest with yourself about who you really are and who you really aren't. I've got a dear, dear friend of mine in Atlanta named Bobby. He's a little bit younger than me. He helped me start our young adult ministry we were doing there. And Bobby was telling me his story of how he became a Christian. And uh, he was, uh, grew up in a great Christian home, very nice home. Uh, parents did really well. He went to the best private schools in Atlanta. Uh, he and his brother did really good academically, uh, went to Vanderbilt to college. And he grew up a you know, pretty good Christian kid. Went to church, did what he's supposed to do, went to a summer camp there, asked Jesus into his heart, and he just seemed fine. And then he went off to college, and for four years did nothing but drink, sleep around, and smoke weed. But he still kept a B average. So four years later, he graduated. And his parents came up for graduation, and they did a whole thing, and, and they drove home afterwards. And he had one last night in Nashville with his friends, with his fraternity, and they're all staying at their house, and they were partying it up. And he's out on the porch with one of his friends. He's drinking. He's smoking a joint. And they're talking, and the friend says something bad about Christianity. And Bobby says, well, hey, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. And he said something back to him. And during the conversation, Bobby says, well, look, look, I'm a Christian. And, I, and his friend just looked at him shocked and said, Bobby, you're no Christian. He said, oh, yes, I am. And then his friend started laughing at him, just laughing at him. And he tried to explain, no, 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 I, I believe this. And, and the more he tried to convince his friend he was a Christian with his beliefs and with his encounter when he was a 14-year-old and all this stuff, the more hysterical his friend laughed. He sat there at his fraternity house in Nashville, the bourbon in his hand and a joint in the other. And he thought this, he looked at himself and said, I am a joke. What a joke. Look at how I live. could care less about Christ these last four years of my life. And he actually got sober <laughs> as he got anxious and he felt the thing. And the next day he drove home. He said he cried all the way home from Nashville to Atlanta, just repenting of his sins, asking God to forgive him. If I had lived, I had blown those four years of his life. I, I want to just say this to you, and I just I don't want to be, I want to say this right. I don't want you to feel manipulated 
or in any way, but I just feel like in my gut, there's some of you here that the thermostat and the thermometer is a real different reading. There's a real big gap between where you're living and what you say you believe. And that gap is an indicator that something is really broken. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is here and He wants to fix that in your life. Restore you back to Him. And let you experience the, the, a, a salvation that is powerful and that is transforming. And a faith that really aligns yourself with Christianity in an authentic way. So I want to pray as we close the service up. Let me just say this. I know our ushers and our band's coming on up. If you would, that's cool. But just where you're at in your, in your life, I just want you to think about where you're really at. If there's a gap between the thermostat, your faith, and your thermometer, how you live, I want to give you a chance to really turn away from that. And if you would, just raise your hand where you're at. I want to pray for you. If you just want to have God do something in your life, anybody else, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anybody else? See that in the back. Anybody else? I want to change. Let me pray for you guys. Say, oh God, I know I've sinned. I know I've come short of what you want from me. But I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins to forgive me. Set me free. Ask him to come into my life and be my Lord. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.